Welcome to Ormwood Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and to our podcast where we share our Sunday sermons for those in Ormwood Park, Atlanta, and beyond. Our mission is to welcome everyone to explore the living God in all of our neighborhoods, and we value welcoming others, opening our minds, being of service, and participating in whatever ways God calls us. We hope you learn, grow, and find a place to belong with us. For today's scripture, we are diving into the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. So listen now for a word from God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And God, who searches hearts, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, or rather who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So we could not obviously do a series on the Presbyterian flavor of Christianity without talking about predestination. Um, Long ago, Presbyterians, those passionate reformers, got a bit bogged down in our scripture for today, Romans 8. Um, This is where some folks fell in love, probably the bad sort of codependent type of love, with the word predestination, for it was born from Romans 8, 29 through 30. And the word predestination means what it sounds like, being destined for a particular fate. Now, Presbyterian flirtation with predestination all started during the Reformation when good old, maybe slightly kooky John Calvin was reading Romans 8 and a bit of Augustine. What he decided and passed on to his Presbyterian offspring was something like this. God knows everyone and has a few special people in mind to love and save. The elect. You should hope you're one of them. But to keep you on your toes, to keep you humble, you're never quite sure if you are chosen or predestined for salvation. And it seems like those who most tightly cling to this theology are usually pretty confident they're on the saved list. Or they're now in therapy. My somewhat jaded summary of John Calvin's interpretation of Romans 8, 29 through 32 is this. God first knows who is who, then chooses, then calls, then justifies, then glorifies. According to Calvin, this chapter shows us the process for how we're changed by God's love. If God chooses us for such a thing. 
But the elephant in the room is, are there people God hasn't chosen? Now you can imagine this creates a bit of terror for many when considering whether we are God's chosen or not, whether you or I are chosen for God's love and salvation or not. For me, the question really boils down to, does God's love have a limit? Um, I know I love being Presbyterian and all that. We've been talking about in earlier weeks what I love. Uh, but there are a few things about my own tradition that make me cringe. And this interpretation of Romans 8 is one of them. And it doesn't actually quite hold with the Apostle Paul's characterization of God in the book of Romans, a characterization we're, we're going to spend a little time thinking about this morning. I think it's important because it's a characterization, a characterization that says God's love and salvation is actually quite expansive. This interpretation that Calvin has also ignores all the other passages in the Bible that reiterate over and over again this worldwide grace of God, the east to west, north to south type of love that God sends out to all the nations. So let's take a little, a closer of a look at who God is in this complicated and beautiful letter to the Romans um, so that we can see what this passage might possibly and surprisingly for some Presbyterians be about, which is in the end is actually this, in love, God chooses us all. So the book of Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome that he had never met. But he knew that he was going to meet them someday on his travels, so Paul wrote them a letter. It appears the letter is mainly to help Gentile and Jewish Christians get along with each other. It also seems to want to prove to the church in Rome that Paul is a trustworthy and smart missionary and they should support him financially, which is kind of what's in all of Paul's letters. <laughs> and finally, Perhaps Paul wrote this letter because some of his friends lived there and asked him to. There are so many possible motivations here. But what we do know is that this letter holds so much of Paul's views on everything from sin to hope, freedom to the common good. It's his longest and most well thought out letter. And it's gotten a lot of attention because of that by theologians of all of Paul's letters in our Christian history. So there's just so much in Romans to explore. In the Women's Commentary Bible, um, Beverly Gaventa says that when you're exploring Paul's letters to the Romans, you better be ready to explore Paul's understanding of God. Though we humans, we make our appearances in the letter. Um, but this letter is mostly about God, God's righteousness through offering salvation to everyone, Jew and Gentile, God's love by transferring humanity from the power of sin, which has tainted everything to the power of the spirit who renews and restores. God's accepting and pursuing us even when we were enemies, right? And this letter talks about God's intercession with the Spirit on our behalf when we're suffering. It's a letter about God's promises of love and salvation filled here and also in the future. It's about the universality of making mistakes, but it's more importantly about the universality of God's power of salvation through Jesus Christ from those mistakes. So Romans is about God. And how God operates in the world in love and the interest of all that God's created. I told you it was an important book. So some parts of chapter 8 we read today are a bit alarming, though, in light of the amazing acts of God's in the rest of the letter. Um, in the first part of our passage, we find out that the Spirit loves us so much, she translates our moans into divine words in order to hear them better. And at the end of chapter eight, we find out that nothing can separate us from this amazing God that Paul has been telling us about. But in the middle, well, in the middle of chapter eight is where Presbyterians got a bit bogged down. 
We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, God also called, and those who God called also justified, and those who justified also glorified. So God foreknew? God predestined, this seems a bit more limiting than the God that we met earlier, right? Who is unafraid of Jew or Gentile, who was our friend even when we were enemies, who sees the whole world under the power of sin, but offers us and even creation a time of redemption. Are there limits to God's love? It didn't seem like it. I sure hope not. So there are a few ways to come out on the other side of this predicament. The first thing we can do is we can look at who Paul is writing to. The people that he's writing to are part of a minority religion that just got readmitted into Rome after being banished for challenging the status quo of the empire's religion. So they were just all forced to leave the city violently. They're probably needing to hear at this point, someone, anyone, that they are truly known and chosen in love by God, despite the suffering they've endured. Having someone think you are special and reach out in love will heal and encourage even the least vain of us. It can buttress a struggling community who needs God to moan for and with them. And maybe that's what Paul is offering here. A pastoral, yes, you're special. I chose you. I love you. So keep at it. We hear, on our end of the conversation, right, 2,000 years later, we hear this kind of exclusion for all time. But when they read this letter, they probably heard an allegiance for solidarity in their suffering by this God. So second, um, we can dig a bit deeper into the text. And here I am going to depend on scholars who remember their Greek better than I do. But we can delve deeper and realize that Paul actually in this context or in this, uh, this part of the letter isn't necessarily talking about a small group of elect people going through a checklist of salvation here on earth in order to be glorified later. So some scholars interpret this as actually Paul declaring that this list of God's actions on our behalf actually stands outside of time at least our understanding of time. This this passage isn't meant to be an interruption to say God's amazing love is now limited to this few. It's a passage that's supposed to remind us that God's good work is so abundant that it exists outside of time. Before we could think of it, certainly before we could earn it, love is not a backup plan. Redemption's not a backup plan. The limitless love of our God was and is the plan all along. It is the stuff of eternity. So we say as much, for example, when we baptize babies here at Ormwood Church. We don't baptize babies because they've believed the right thing or done the right thing or we know the list of the elect (laughs) or because there's secretly some part of that. We baptize them to acknowledge that before we can utter the words, I love you to God, God is already bathing us in love. Chosen by God, justified, called, we are already wrapped up in God's glory. 
These are the things that are true for all of time, even when our lives are so messy in time that we can't see that. Even when we think no one would choose us, this isn't predestination without a promise or promise keeper. This is predestination with a promise and a promise keeper. And then thirdly, I think what's helpful is if we read the passage in Romans to bundle it up with the Bible's broader witness in many communities to the power and presence of God everywhere. In the Bible, we have some of the most extreme views of predestination very well-tempered. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires everyone to be saved, to be free of harm, and to come to the knowledge of truth. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to deep change and transformation. Or John 129. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, giving salvation to all people. Psalm 145.9 The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that God has made. It appears that the Bible is a bit more complex on the idea of predestination than Calvin maybe wanted to admit all those years ago. At the end of our passage for today, Paul talks about all the different things that whisper in our ears, threats maybe about the limits of God's love, condemnation, hardship, stress, powers, rulers, heights, depths. And maybe for you, it's the voice of a political ruler like in Paul's time, or maybe it's the thought of death or a broken relationship or powers that you can't yet name or understand. There is so much in our lives and in our world that tries to convince us that God's love is a limited commodity, that there are insiders and outsiders. But let's not let Calvin or me or you or death or rulers or powers or diagnoses or stress or anything tell us that there is a possibility to be separated from God's love. Let's not assume God, or let's be honest, you or I will cast each other into some eschatological loser pile. Our sin, perhaps, yes, in that pile. Our bad theology, yes, perhaps, in that pile. The harm done to us and the harm we've done to others, yes, by all means. I think God's justice has predestined those things that make us groan to be done away with. But you? You? No. As good old Karl Barth, probably one of the most famous Reformed Protestant theologians from the 20th century, reminds us, for sin, God says no, but for us, God always says yes. Through God, we are more than conquerors over death, over life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depths, everything in all of creation, maybe even John Calvin. Do not listen to the fear of the limits of love, of God, of grace. God is behind and before us, predestining all of God's creation with a promise of glory.